0: The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. It's typically at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, when Pastor Brian's been out of town, I, I have been filling the afternoon spot, and Pastor Tim has been in the mornings and gone through a series on the union with Christ. So uh, the topic that I've been covering is the topic of shame. And so since I'm here in the morning, I'm kind of out of sync realize you have missed the first two sermons, probably, or some of you, and so I'm going to try to introduce us a little bit to the topic and the context for the topic um, this morning. I'm going to begin reading Genesis 2, at the end, chapter chapter 2, verse 25, and go through chapter 3, 7, and then also uh, 21. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may not eat of the fruit of the, garden, of the trees in the garden. The so God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then skip forward to verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning. Help me in particular to be clear. The word would be ministered well, as we hear these truths, we have a greater understanding of our situation, the complexity of it, and the glory of Christ as you have come to rescue us from our slavery and our bondage to our sin and misery. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this is the third message in the series. The first two messages really were setting a stage. And I, as I uh, I have been studying through shame. I do most most of my time in the ministry throughout the week is in my office, counsel, meeting with people who are in crisis, various circumstances, and working with them. And as I have worked with people in various circumstances and trials, I've come to more and more realize that shame is a much larger component of our human condition and our human experience than I ever anticipated or ever understood. The more I've studied and began to understand, the more helpful it has been been to me. I would also say that Pastor Brian has played a key role in that. He Frequently through the ministry of the Word uh, has a, a common theme through his as he presents the gospel of this idea of shame being uncovered and the covering of Christ and how the gospel solves this great problem that we have of being uncovered or exposed as sinners. Uh, so I I, I I needed to prepare something that also profited me when I was in that situation so I been working through shame. It's an ongoing project for me, and uh, I hope that it would be profitable for you. But we're just touching the surface. As I got into this, I was, this is so complicated, and so there's so much more there. I'll be doing this for a while, but I'm going to focus on one particular aspect of it this week, which I'll get into in a minute. The first message that I preached was a message to set the context of the garden. So that we understand when we see the brokenness in the text I just read, we understand the context from which that came. And my points in that sermon were that the garden was perfect. God had made everything perfect in order, structure. There was nothing that existed to the detriment of another thing. Everything was perfectly established in order. God, because he is a God of perfection, established his creation in a pattern of perfection. Everything was perfect. Everything was peaceful. In that perfection, there there was a shalom. There was a a peace that was established that, again, uh, everything lived in coexistence, in harmony with one another. And when we talk about shalom, it's not just this tranquility. It's actually this sense that everything is for my profit. There's nothing here that would cause me harm or or be to my detriment. That there's a a peace where I can live in this context, knowing that everything here is for my good. So perfection, peace, and then purity. This is the holiness of God as his character is on display. In his creation, the holiness of God, this purity, which really transitions over into the relationships that were established. God, at the very center and pinnacle of His creation, establishes centerpiece of humans. We are unlike any other, other creations. And some of the things that stand out in Genesis 1 uh, to that creation is this sense that there's a language, an ability to communicate. God begins communicating early on with humans, but humans alone. There's a communication and in, in that an establishment of a relationship, and then a communication between the humans that he created, and also an establishment of that relationship. He says that once he's put humans there as the centerpiece, that everything's very good. His creation is now complete. Then we see an indication that he not only created the the trees and the food for their utility and their just their sustainment, but he said, "I have created things." that are pleasing to the eye and good for food. And now we see that God has not only put us in the center of his creation, but he had an eye to us and what pleases us and what draws us uh, pleasure and delight and beauty to us. And we see that God had an interest in that. And he was for us and bountiful and lavished his creation on us. And we were put in the center of it. And then God rested and he said, this is for you. And hopefully we understand that that's the countenance of God toward his humans in that creation. He loved us, lavished us. There's bountiful provision, and we were at the center of it. So that when we see Eve being tempted and going through the process of making a decision, do I pursue this one tree because there is something that may be good there for me or a blessing, we can see that that decision is in context of all of this other bounty. And we can see it's just absolutely ludicrous that she would have come to this conclusion. My second sermon was actually on this that happened in the garden, the fall, as she was tempted by this crafty serpent who came in and really, through this deception, and she started to process, is God really good? Is there something better? I see all this and it's wonderful, but maybe there's something even more enhanced. I could I could uh, trade up a little bit here and get the, the full experience. And so she was processing this. And the process really cast a dark face on God. God might be withholding from me. Maybe he's not good for me. And she finally came to the conclusion that I'm going to take of this and eat because I think it will be better. I will be more blessed. And we can see the commonality in our own sin. as We're tempted and we struggle with things. Maybe the blessing is in disobedience. Just the absolute foolishness of that. So we see Eve in this situation take, and then we see the consequences of that. Things began to unravel quickly. The summary statement for all of humanity prior to sin entering, we find at the end of chapter 2. The man and the wife were naked and not ashamed. And we read over that and we Understanding our vocabulary, naked means undressed, not ashamed. And we, we don't make much of it, but I want you, we need to make much of it. We need to dig deeply into that because that is the summary statement of what it meant to be human, that we were naked and not ashamed. And there's so much more. In, in, that message is online if you want to dig into it a little bit. But what I want you to see is there was a, a pure other, othersness in that. I had no regard for myself. I'd never considered myself I had never feared I'd never had anxiety I'd never had any real consideration that you were not 100% for me and everything in my experience, everything around me surrounding me was not 100% for my good. And so I could be naked before this because I didn't have to cover up anything. And I was not ashamed. I had nothing. The experience of shame was not even a concept at that point. And then after the fall we come down to our primary text for this morning in Genesis 3-7, and then we see, and the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. Now I am preaching at 1.30 as well, so I decided to uh, make this message a little longer and then cut it in half. <laughs> so we're going to deal with the first part of this text, the eyes of both were open and naked this morning, and then this afternoon we will talk about Sewing fig leaves together and finding themselves going cloths, and a little bit, both of them connecting to the gospel. But my headings for this morning related to this text are the eyes and the robe. The robe is is a little strange. It's just, I just put a term there trying to help us connect something that we could remember later on, but the eyes in particular. We'll spend most of the time this morning on the eyes. Verse 7 And the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked. Again, before the fall, the human condition, in nature, would have been described as innocent, righteous, honorable. Everything that I saw was good. And everything that had ever looked at me I had no judgment, no evaluation. It was pure comfort. Everything that I had experienced had been full acceptance, full approval, full love, perfect, peaceful, pure creation. The relationships between both man and God and humans uh, could only be described as this pure, perfect love. When I deal with marriage counseling, the first thing that we do is we go back to Genesis and say, "Well, what should this look like?" right in the garden. Oh, it should look like this. I purely love you and I have no regard for myself. I am I am others focused with all of my being. That's what was here in the garden. And so uh that is the the human experience prior to this. But as a consequence of Adam and Eve turning from God's blessing, and believing the lie that God is not good, then their eyes were opened. And the question is, what are they now seeing? What are their eyes open to? They already knew good. They could see blessing and goodness all around them. What they began to see, though, was the consequences. And as I talked in the second message about the brokenness and the things that happened at the fall, it's like a cloud bank that kind of just becomes rolling in and begins to settle on humanity. And things progressively get darker and more oppressed. And just the brokenness and the decay and the death that they begin to to experience and see around them, there's indications of the the, the full destruction, but it's just rolling in like this. So what are their eyes open to? The coming storm. Their, Their eyes are open to, oh, my word. This is going to be so drastically different than our initial experience that we are fully unprepared for this. Adam and Eve began to see the darkness settling and the decay which quickly led to death. The vibrant color of the garden was now beginning overshadowed by the darkness of evil and this hue, this just dark hue. They also saw their own human condition changing. Uh, for the first time, you see their relationship with themselves and others began to, the fabric of it just began to unrode, erode. They also saw their own, excuse me, they saw that they had done what they had done and what they were becoming. They had rebelled against this benevolent God. They had become unrighteous, broken, marred, tainted, and corrupt. They knew guilt as they realized they had transgressed against God. And this is what they began to sense, that, they, that something was broken and things were going to be very different. Then in the haze and brokenness, they looked at each other. A look they had made a thousand times, a familiar glance to each other, into the eyes of the one God had created just for them. This perfect love, this perfect companion, the purest and most blessed one flesh union that has ever existed. A union that can only be described as pure love, unconditional, uh, otherness love. But this time, as their eyes met, something was different. Replacing the purest statement of I love you and I'm for you is now a question. And this question haunts all of humanity since then. The question for the first time is not completely other-focused, but turns my attention inward, and I ask this question. Did you see what I did? Did you see that? Did you, did you see what I did? Followed by another question quickly. Well, what do you think of me now? What are you thinking? The first time in all of humanity, we had this other focus, pure love, one directional, giving of myself. Now my eyes roll in and I see myself and I'm exposed. And I'm wondering, what do you think of me now? And it began this new human condition that has impacted every human from this time on. Because we're born with this nature now looking in first and then looking out. What do you think of me? And then the verse goes on, from their eyes were opened and to, and they knew they were naked. And that glance and that question contained all of the relational brokenness that man would ever experience. It severed this relationship. Never again was there a pure motive just for you. Never again was there a pure action just for you. Every motive, every action on my that a human ever committed after that point was tainted by this thought, do you love me? Do you accept me? How are you going to respond to this? How is this going to impact our relationship? Are you going to see me? What are you going to think of me? Everything at that point has this underlying fabric in it. I see I'm unrighteous, and I see my brokenness. I see you are unrighteous, and I see your brokenness. I see I'm naked. I see you're naked. Adam's heart is darkened, and he gasps to realize Eve's heart must also be. The question that rang throughout all of creation has echoed throughout time is, Do you see me? The question and its answer led to a dramatic act by Adam and Eve, and they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loin claws the realization that they were unrighteous broken guilty led to a new realization this realization was that they that you seeing my unrighteousness is going to cause a problem that I must cover Adam and Eve at this time were alone they're not covering from God they're covering from each other what a moment ago was pure love is now me hiding from you covering from you wondering are you going to accept me are you going to love me Adam was covering his nakedness from Eve, and Eve was covering from Adam. This act is so far more significant than just dealing with the embarrassment of being unclothed. Remember the summary statement that we had at the beginning, naked and not ashamed. This covering revealed a a new human characteristic, one of shame. While we were naked and not ashamed, now we are naked and we are fundamentally shameful. And we must cover it. We must hide it. Shame is not mentioned in this verse, but uh, because uh, we see later on nakedness as it's laid out throughout Scripture is always tied with shame or covering something that that is shameful to be seen. So we've seen how shame entered the human experience. And uh, just a simple definition of shame. I tried to come up with the simplest definition I could find. A sense of dread from you or God seeing my unrighteousness. A sense of dread. That's shame. A sense of dread from you or God seeing my unrighteousness, my brokenness, Uh, that I am not whole, pure, perfect anymore. There's a sense of dread. Often shame and guilt are confused. When we think of shame, we often intermingle them with guilt. Guilt is a natural God-given response to breaking the law of God. Guilt is a universal concept, a universal sense. That when we violate the moral uh, code, the moral pattern of God, that we feel guilt. And we should. We're born as image bearers. We're giving this internal barometer. Although we live in this broken world and this corrupt existence, there's still a part of us that senses when we violate the moral fabric of God. As we live according to our nature from our parents, Adam, Like our natural family, we sense opposition to God, guilt and pain. If we can think of guilt and pain synonymously, that will be beneficial. When I get injured physically, when something happens and I I feel the pain of a physical affliction, uh, it's a good thing. It it notifies me that I need to pay attention to this. That I need some care. uh, I might need to have it understand what's going on. Well. Guilt is the same way for our souls. When we experience guilt, it is pain to the soul. It says, hey, something has happened here, and you need to check what's going on. Uh, what you are doing or experiencing is in opposition to the moral law of God. We need to know that. And for God's kindness to us, he gives us a sense of guilt to say, hey, listen, that we need to figure out what's going on there. And so pain and guilt are very synonymous. On the other side of the coin is the eternal feeling of dread we experience when we sin in our unity. So while guilt is a relationship between the law and God, it's helpful. Shame is not. Shame is a, an intruder. It is how I feel when I sin or my brokenness, my frailty, my weakness is exposed in front of you. And I ask that question, what do you now think of me? So shame is an intruder. It's foreign to our human experience, and it does not profit us like guilt does. When Adam and Eve's eyes were opened, they not only knew they had transgressed God's laws, but they they also sensed that they had done it publicly. They began a new internal conversation. I have performed poorly and not met the standard. I see my failure. I wonder who else knows my failure. I wonder what they now think of me. I am unrighteous, and that is what's known about me. How will others respond to my brokenness? So we have this sense of shame now that settles in and becomes a tremendous motivator for me to respond to the community around me. Where I once was able to just give myself wholly for your good, now I have this regard for me. How am I fitting into this community? What do they think about me? Since we are all unrighteous and by nature transgressors of the law, we all have... A commonality in this sense of shame. The human condition prior to sin entered was naked and not ashamed, but now the summary statement of human condition is they knew they were naked, and central to that knowledge is now shame, this dread of being seen. And my word to summarize this uh, section is eyes, and that helps me think about what we are being, what we see, and what we and who is seeing us, and how we're responding under the gaze of our community, or the gaze of God. Eyes, now we have a response because I, I care what your gaze, what you're considering as you gaze upon me. You and I both have a fundamental and common experience of shame. We know we're broken. We know we're different. We know that we're not perfect and that we're lacking. We sense an inadequacy at times. We sense blemishes and impurities. Our actions accuse us and our thoughts accuse us. And now we are living in a sense of unrighteousness. And I am deeply concerned about what you think about me in that condition. We also live among other sinners. And lots of our shame comes from their actions, the way they me. Others do not love us as we would desire. We're impacted by other sin in various ways. Some of the mistreatment is because of our sin, for sure, but a lot of it is the, from the other people's sin. Their response, their anger, they're they're wanting us to accept them and approve of them and, and love them and honor them. And when we don't do it just right, they afflict us. And so often we are afflicted. We're victims of crimes. We're violated. We're treated as less than human. If you talk to people that have been mistreated horribly by people. There's a dehumanness that happens in that where not only do you see me, but you you despise me. Or you see me, and now you're using me as an instrument for your pleasure, for your desire, for your good. And my existence becomes about your profit. And I am deeply impacted by that. So now we have this real cesspool for uh, the human nature and the human condition. At the very center of it is shame. I have... Uh, read several books by a man uh, by the name of Ed Welch, who is a counselor uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, he's written a book, a couple books, "Shame Interrupted" and a little book on another little green book. <laughs> and uh, so they've I've, I've stolen a lot of the material from them, <coughs> from him. But <coughs> it's actually been Pastor Brian that's been most helpful as I've thought to you. He taught uh, on shame, uh, and he almost every Sunday he mentioned shame in a component or, or one component or another. But uh, and he, in this uh, Sunday school class, Storyline the Bible, has four lessons on shame uh, later on. They're like lesson week 24, 25. But he's also uh, very been very helpful for me. Part of that that I've drawn from is that shame is really experienced by humans in three large categories one of which we're going to talk about today. The first category and the title for this message is naked shame. I feel exposed and I need to cover myself. Naked shame. There's another shame category, though, that's an outcast shame. I am fearful of being rejected, cast out. We see God interacting, them hiding from God, and then God eventually casting them out. But we see this thread of this cast-out shame in the Bible where, uh, you're shunned or you're cast out in the fear and the, the way that that controls us. The third category of shame is unclean shame, dirty shame, being unclean. And we see that again, uh, a thread throughout the scripture. We will talk about those, and there is an overlap, but you might, I might get done and you might say, listen, you didn't really talk about my experience of shame and how I think it really impacted. And we will get to more of that. We're kind of beginning through the process. So today we're really only looking at nakedness or this naked shame this is the most common way shame is described in the bible when you read a passage about nakedness it is usually dealing with shame it's saying listen here's something you need to cover and sometimes it's just our physical body but a lot of times they're saying hey listen your nakedness is seen your sin is exposed and you need to cover it or these people are responding this way because they're covering themselves so that their sin won't be seen and so that's a common element throughout the Bible. If you were to do a Google search on the number one debilitating fears among humans, public speaking is like at the top of the list, but there's other fears, fear of death, maybe first, but this is usually second or third. Fear of public speaking. Isn't that interesting? What is it that we're afraid of? How much would I have to offer you to come up here and stand on the edge of the stage with your hands down for five minutes without saying anything? Logan, you ready? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. oh, you're, that's right, because nobody's going to do it for free. <laughs> because why? We have a sense of being exposed. Like, I'm going to come up here, and all of these eyes, all of them are going to be evaluated, looking at me. I'm going to be exposed. I can't cover myself. I can't use all my natural tactics to divert your gaze, which would come up with some all kinds of things. How about if I, how about this? Okay, I'd like to start over here and I'd like everybody to stand up and just state your name and where you're from. And it just locks the room down. You can just feel the air. <laughs> like I have to stand up in front of these people. This is a pretty friendly crowd, but still, it would be, there'd be this sense of dread for many of us. And that is this naked shame. I am concerned, fundamentally concerned as a human, what you're thinking of me. Are you going to judge me, evaluate me? Are you going to accept me, approve of me? Or are you going to turn your gaze away from me? So, this naked shame. Um, The fear is that my brokenness, my inadequacy, or weakness would be found out. You would see my fault. We work very hard to make ourselves presentable in our communities. And you guys have done a very good job this morning but it took some time, right? It took some work Nobody showed up like they got out of bed. Why? Because we don't want to be seen like that in our community. Now, in a more private sense, in a community that I trust a little more, maybe I will, but not in a larger community. We are mindful of our cleanliness, our smell, our hair, our face, our clothing. So much of these things are driven by what I want you to see when you look at me. What is it I want you to know about me when you? What, what I want you to know is important to me when you look at me. We don't recognize immediately the shame is behind this. Within this naked shame, and I've mentioned it already, is this sense that I am within your gaze. You are looking at me, and that's a large component of naked shame. The other component of naked shame is you look away from me. I want you to see me, but you don't. I'm not important enough for you to see me. I'm too small. I don't fit in. I wasn't invited, those type of things, just looking away. Let's think for a minute about these eyes facing towards us, examples. And I just, I kind of just randomly went through places where I think we're impacted by the way we're seen. Now, I'm not saying anything about you particularly when I go through this list. Please do not take this personally. I have, there's no hidden agenda here. It's just my brainstorm. And it's not going to apply to you, and sometimes it will apply differently, but I'm just going to go through some of the ideas that I came up with. I went, I talked about going around the room. That's a good one. Uh, why are the back seats at church so popular? <laughs> Again, I know there's good reasons to sit in the back, and I'm not trying to poke, poke you, but uh, am I going to trip going up to communion? Your wife asks you to dance. You enter a room and everyone seems to stop what they're doing and turn to look at you. We had to put a wall up in our fellowship hall. You know why? Because there was a fear of people coming through those dark doors. And every time the door opened, everybody in the fellowship hall stopped what they were doing, and they all turned and looked at the door. People wouldn't come in. (laughs) They were looking for new ways in the building. We put the wall up, and now people can kind of gradually enter into this community. Uh, You come underdressed to a party. Uh, Your friend told you it was a A Halloween party, but it wasn't. You have food on your face at a restaurant. You're getting wrinkles or gray hair. Your debit card doesn't work at the grocery store. Your kids act up at church and make you look bad. You need glasses to read. Your dishes have to be done. Your house picked up before inviting anyone over. Your family is poor and has limited resources. You feel most alive and respected in your new truck. Your family is not sophisticated enough (coughs) to invite people over. You want to talk about the Lord? But the group has another focus. What would people sitting behind me think of me if I sat up front? You've been divorced. You struggle to read. You're addicted to pornography. You had to leave high school and get a GED. You were fired from your job. Your husband had an affair. Your shoes are not cool enough for the crowd. All of our shoe wearers are not here to the don't see them. Shoes have become a big deal. Your youth. The business. Your business failed. You need to be approved of. You must be right. You must get in the last word. You must argue your point and tell tell everybody uh, at least it confesses that you're right, even if they don't believe you. You are adopted. You cannot risk a new conversation or meeting someone new. You are sexually assaulted. Your father is in jail in the newspaper. Put it on the front page of the paper. Your kids are unbelievers. The lawn has weeds in it. Your fear You fear going to a new restaurant. Where do we go? Do we sit or stand or... Are they going to, where's the sign that tells me what to do? You're the only one in your friend group that is without a side-by-side or a new RV. You haven't taken your kids to Disneyland. You were born into the wrong family on the wrong side of the tracks. You haven't joined the cause yet. Social media has used this to really spin up this sense that I am other than what's norm, what's expected. For me, personally, shame keeps me from looking you in the eye. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. It's a huge struggle for me to actually engage people in the eye when I'm talking to them. If you, I am looking at you, it's by God's grace. <laughs> because I feel so exposed and vulnerable when I'm doing that. And for me, to when I'm preaching, to actually make eye contact, I mean, for years, I knew, I could just watch the hand of the clock going around and around because I was, I was some exposure to that. I will not probably ever call you on the because I, I there's something about having a conversation with you and not being able to see your body language that unsettles. And a lot of it's just you feeling exposed. So we all experience this in different ways, uh, but it is gripping. Some examples of you don't see me, and I listed some of those. Uh, you know, I'm small. I wasn't. I was picked last. I'm not invited. I want you to see me, but you don't. Again, it's this feeling of shame. Um, a lot of that has to do with being unclean, and we'll talk more about that in some future. Naked shame is uh, is so powerful that it controls entire societies. You've probably heard of societies that are are shame-honor cultures, where the entire society is is controlled by shame. You would never shame your family. You would never shame your community. And if you do, there's drastic measures that come into place to get you back to a place of honor, back so that you're honorable. And so shame-honor is extremely powerful, and it's actually leveraged in many countries. Uh, public hangings are more effective to curb crime than private ones. Part of it is just the fear that it instills on people, but part of it is the shame of seeing your family and uh, being publicly executed. Uh, we used to use stocks and pillars, pillory, where you were publicly shackled by your feet or through your head and your hands. And why were those so effective? It was the shaming of it. You were publicly being dealt with, your sin was exposed. There was usually a placard explaining what you'd done, and then you were put in public so everybody could see it. And that shame had a tremendous impact on controlling behavior. Many concepts of our culture are based on naked shame, humiliation, you you see me broken, embarrassment, you see me fail, insecurity, you see me weak, disgraced, you see me without honor, vulnerable, you see me and I feel threatened, mocking, taunting, scorning, you see me and point out my failure. Being the laughing stock. you see me and my failure amuses you. I'm bashful. I remain quiet and out of the way, so you have nothing to see. A need for respect. Better see my value and how hard I've worked. Arrogance. Obviously, you can see I'm better than you are. Pride. I don't care how you see me. I see you as worthless. A Dominant. In conversations, I want you to like me and validate me. Can't you hear me? All of these are ways that we experience shame in our culture. There's a passage in Psalm 44 that's very helpful because it it lays out in a more descriptive way these different aspects of shame. And I'm just going to read it. Uh, Psalm 44, 9 through 16. Listen for the ways that somebody's been rejected or disapproved of. But you have rejected us and disgraced us, have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from our foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. That is a shame passage, talking about the many faces of shame. So, that is a brief introduction to shame. We will continue to work through that. My second point, point, in much shorter, but way more important, is the robe. The robe. Yes, there are awful consequences to Adam Adam's sin. God cursed the serpent, the woman, the men, and all creation. But the real response that they deserved was eternal damnation. Something we fear that God of the old, sometimes we fear the God of the Old Testament as a God of anger and wrath. Justice It's his primary attribute. We will hear he's just angry, and the New Testament is different. But what I wanted to draw our attention to in closing is Genesis 3 21. And I read that earlier. So, Adam and Eve had hid from God. They had blamed each other. God had then cursed the ground, cursed them, and really should have, at that point, ended it. This human uh, condition should have been over. They were rebels, uh, they had broken everything and they rightly deserved his justice. But in verse 21, we see this very amazing thing. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And here we see the first act of mercy. First act of mercy. I'm going to withhold my wrath from you, which you deserve rightly, and I'm going to extend to you this kindness. In this case, this kindness looks like covering you. You are pathetically covered in your your, uh, leaves, but i'm going to cover you in a durable garment i'm going to sacrifice an animal which you probably would not have conceived of doing and i'm going to take the skins of that animal and i'm going to make for you garments and here we is introduced this thread that we see throughout the rest of the bible of this covering these garments that god provides for his people a durable covering a fitting covering we see these, and this afternoon we're going to work through more of these examples of these <coughs> robes garments. But what we see is a foreshadowing here of a final covering, a full covering, the most essential covering where the Father will send His Son into this miserable condition where He will enter in his, into suffering and the hardships of this life as He will... Experience the shame. He will experience being cast out and separated and mocked. For things like his parents weren't married. You know, there's probably nearly a thousand young boys who were murdered while he was escaped into Egypt. He was lowly and outcast, nothing to look at. He dealt with unclean people and was seen as unclean. He was hated by the Pharisees or the acceptable religious elite. He was mocked and reviled and despised and stripped naked. And we see in this, as we read in uh, Isaiah 61, that in Christ, as he performed a, the righteous standard required to, meet the, to satisfy the demands of the law, he then was cru- uh, crucified publicly. And a good question for us is, wouldn't it been easier, simpler, uh, less drama, less complexity in the society if Jesus would have been killed out back. Just put it into to it, he's done. But no, what did Christ experience? He experienced the mocking and the the torment from his people, then from the, the the soldiers and the leaders of the day, and then he was he went through the town carrying the cross, stripped, beaten, weak. They mocked him, crown of thorns. And then naked he was put on the cross. Our greatest fear, public exposure, being disapproved of, rejected, Christ willingly took on himself. And in that, he took all of our shame, all of the fear we have of your gaze on me, he took on himself, onto the cross. And there he paid for not only our forgiveness, But he bestowed on us this righteous robe, this durable covering. He covered us by his blood with the righteousness, his righteousness that he purchased. And now, for all those that believe, every time you are looked at, the eyes of God are on you. All that the Father ever sees is the righteousness of his Son. You have nothing to hide. You do not need to cover from this God. He has covered you with His righteousness. He sees you as a dearly, loved, pure, perfect son or daughter. Your performance will never measure up, but Christ purchased it for you. And you are covered. Your shame is covered. We do not need to hide from one another. We do not need to hide our sin or act like we are something that we're not. We can actually say, oh, I'm a struggling human in this condition. And I'm trusting in the forgiveness I have in Christ and the righteous covering. Oh, this is such a beautiful concept. We see strewn throughout Scripture. This afternoon we'll talk more about it. But the eyes of God gazing at us, steady, longing, loving, eager. He never looks away. He never looks away because we're covered in the righteousness. Of his son. And in verse 21, we see this foreshadowing of this coming sacrifice and covering we receive in Christ. So may we be enthralled in that this morning. This afternoon, we're going to talk more about the covering, things we do to cover, and again, more about this robe that we have in Christ. This brings us to the Lord's table, which is a fitting place for us to come. So we do come broken. We are broken. We're weak. We're, it's right for us to feel shame, at least guilt. But we know we don't measure up. We know there's things to judge. You, you, could, you could pick through my life, and you would, you would have much to judge. And I would fear your acceptance and approval because of my performance. I would. If you knew my thoughts and my motives and just my priorities and the struggles I have personally. Each of us are the same way. But we all come to this place. And God says, no, you can come. You can come. Your shame has been covered. You can come. You're not not coming as a broken vessel. You're coming as a redeemed, purchased, loved vessel. You're coming to this table. And this reminds us that it was the broken body. It was the shed blood that provided the covering for us. And we come in Christ's work uh, because of what he's done. We come in faith to him. And this is in the time of encouragement and strength for us. This meal is open to all those who are trusting in Christ for this very thing. You put your faith in Christ. and you're trusting in Him, this meal is for you. May it strengthen you today and remind you that indeed you're covered. You don't have to hide from God nor one another. We can live real lives with each other because of what Christ has done on our behalf. So all those that are believers, that are trusting in Christ, can come. The elements are stacked. There's a cup, uh, two cups together. The bread on the bottom, the uh, uh, juice on the top. And so we come up row by row. We take them. Please be seated after that, and then wait. And we will take them together. There's some in the back for those in the back. So you have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.